He's an associate pastor at Heritage Bible Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. So this will be Matt's first time here. So let's greet Pastor Matt. All right. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> your clapping was more rousing than your good morning. That was like, that sounded like a good morning I would get at home from my teenage sons. Like good morning. You okay, buddy? Everything, everything going all right? Good morning. You know, it's, of course, you know, some teenage boys kind of speak in, you know, I call it mumble. You know, uh, you know that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory thing where the guy's like, mumbler? You know what I'm talking about in the movie? That's how I talk to my sons all the time because they, they, they mumble like 90% of the things that they say to me. Uh, hey, it's great to be with you today. Uh, I, I uh, have a special affinity for Central City, Nebraska because the greatest gift that I ever received came from Central City. My wife was born. My wife was born here, and uh, so I'm very thankful for my amazing bride of 27 years and the way that she uh, runs our house and keeps our 10 children in line. Uh, I do have 10 children. Uh, three is a good number, just in case you're trying to plan like for the future. Three is is good. And I've considered whittling down to three, but I I just can't decide which ones to get rid of and which ones to keep and. Uh, I was considering like a survivor kind of a thing where they have like a thing you like snuff out the torch and you know like sorry you're you're out, uh, but uh, we we haven't got it figured out. <coughs> uh, I am Stone Swantex uncle, and so I have a special I have a special uh, message for you this morning. Uh, my sermon is entitled Ten Things Stone Needs to Work On." <laughs> it was originally a hundred, but they said I didn't have time for that, so I, I whittled it whittled it down to, to the top ten things. No, Stone, Stone's a good guy. I'm, I'm thankful for him and, uh, and his testimony. Um, we, uh, we have served, we, we moved back to Lincoln to do some church planning in, uh, in, in Lincoln, but uh, I've served as a pastor of student ministries for almost 25 years, working with middle school, high school, and, and college students. And uh, I, I want to share, just uh, as kind of a way of introduction here, I want to share a report that I saw uh, a while back, a four-year study on the religious views of teenagers conducted by the University of North Carolina. They surveyed over 3,500 teens, and the survey reported, this is kind of surprising, it reported high levels of youth involved in regular church attendance and assertive claims to Christian belief, like 80, 82% of teens saying they were involved in church and they, they claimed to be Christians, to, to believe in Christianity. So that was kind of shocking to me. I'm like, well, th that's pretty good stats, right? But the study went on and they did face-to-face -face interviews. So this is not just like, you know, check a box. This is like, I want to like get to know you a little bit and, and see what you think about things. And, and so they started doing these face-to-face -face interviews and this is what they said. Most teens have little or no understanding of historic Orthodox Christianity. And researchers found that many teens' religious knowledge was, quote, meager, nebulous, and often fallacious, an engagement with the subject of their traditions remarkably shallow. Most seemed incapable of expressing their beliefs and the difference those beliefs should make in their lives, regardless of their denominational affiliation. So in other words, many teens are going to church, many teens are, are, are claiming Christianity of one sort or another, but the majority that they interviewed lack a knowledge of what they really believe and why they believe it. And not only that, but a lack of understanding about what difference 
their belief or their professed belief is supposed to make in their life. Well, we know, and I hope you know here at Nebraska Christian, that your belief in Christianity, your belief in the message of the gospel, your belief in Jesus Christ makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in the world. And I hope we could sit, we could do some face-to-face interviews, and you would be able to easily explain to me not only what you believe, but what difference it's made in your life. And so this morning, we're going to have the opportunity to, to dig into the word a little bit and to talk about some of the differences that our faith in Christ makes. And so I'm excited for this passage. Go ahead and turn to Philippians 4. If you're not there already, Philippians 4, 1 to 9. I, uh, I appreciate so much Gordon giving me this opportunity, and I just love to, to talk to Gordon and, and, and to fellowship with him. But uh, I'm, I'm a little bit upset with him right now. Uh, he doesn't know this. This is, the first, this is the first he's hearing of it. But uh, he gave me this, this passage, Philippians 4, 1 to 9, and uh, it, it's basically like four sermons in one passage, all right? So I got to try to like quickly cram four sermons into like one chapel message, and I'm going to try to break this down for you and hopefully give you some, some good content to be able to talk about when you break up into small groups. But for starters, just follow along with me as we read these nine verses. Verse 1, therefore... My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, let me just give you my, my four sermons, okay? Let me just give you like my, my, my topics of my four sermons. And, and, and these will kind of serve maybe as discussion points or as topics for you to, to discuss when you split up later. Verses 1 to 3 is a good sermon on unity and faithfulness. Verses 4 and 5, that's, that's a great sermon on joy and gentleness. Verses 6 and 7 is prayer and peace. And then 8 and 9 is, is talking about our focus, our, our thought life. So you have unity and faithfulness in 1 to 3, <clears throat> joy and gentleness in 4 to 5, prayer and peace in verses 6 to 7, and focus and thoughts in verses 8 and 9. Now, a little bit of background, okay? And I, I know you've been in Philippians. You're going to have an, a, an a incredible uh, passage again at your next chapel. But, but just making sure we understand that Paul had a very close relationship with this church at Philippi. Okay, very close, very friendly, friendly relationship. They were helping him financially. They were supporting him. 
Uh, when they heard that he was imprisoned in Rome, they sent Epaphroditus with another gift. There's probably no New Testament church that had the same kind of loving fellowship and, and thoughtfulness in encouraging the Apostle Paul. And so in a lot of ways, Philippians is basically a thank you letter. And, and it's probably the most personal letter that Paul wrote to a church. And so it's kind of incredible that here all these years letter, I mean, this, this ancient letter handed down for thousands of years, and we get this kind of personal insight into what's going on. Look again with me here at the, the first three verses. And just a, a couple of things to note here. Notice first the source of Paul's joy. What is it? It's his beloved brethren, right? His beloved brethren, his relationship with believers, seeing their faithfulness, seeing them using their giftedness. This is a great source of joy for Paul. And did you know that there are a lot of New Testament verses on joy and, and, and finding joy in other believers? Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that so often in the church we have conflict and and bickering and disunity and all these things that the Bible says over and over and over again that our brothers and sisters in Christ are to be a source of joy for us. So maybe at some point we, we kind of got it wrong. We're, we're doing it wrong sometimes, don't you think? The faithfulness of fellow Christians is supposed to cheer us. It's supposed to encourage us. And, and we find joy when we have a chance to serve or encourage or minister to another Christian. Even witnessing the ministry of others is a cause for joy. I think my, my greatest joy as a, as a pastor for all these years is to see that the students that, uh, that I have ministered to and that I have served going on to serve others and, and, and faithfully ministering in the church, some as pastors or uh, full-time in full-time ministry and others just as lay people in the church, but, but they're faithful and they're kind of carrying on this tradition. It's kind of a spiritual multiplication that happens. The unity of believers brings us joy. Philippians 2, if you, if you jump up to uh, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So I guess my, my question in this first sermon here, are these things that could easily be found in your school? <clears throat> and by that I mean faithful believers who encourage and build up others, right? This is the source of joy for Paul. So do your, do your teachers, do your pastors, can, can they look to you and, and your experience here at the school and, and the way you all treat one another and they can say, oh, that is such an encouragement to me. To see the way these teens interact with each other, the way they build each other up, the way they come alongside each other spiritually, it's such an encouragement. Does unity describe your interactions with one another? Now, notice in verse 2, he, he points out two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, who uh, apparently were not getting along so well. So now, how would you like this, right? You, you have like a little conflict with someone, and maybe you're not getting along so well. And so the Apostle Paul puts in a letter that's supposed to be read to the entire church, hey, you guys need to start getting along. Like, knock it off, right? Let's, let's start acting right. Let's, let's try to get along. And not only is it a letter that goes to the church and probably everybody reads it, but it's immortalized in the eternal word of God, right? So, so here they are. They're like, wow, thanks, Paul. Okay. I mean, this is like worse than, you know, posting something on social media. And you're like, really? Did you have to post that? We don't need to know everybody's dirty laundry. Like, you know, don't air all your personal problems. But here he, he just calls them out, right? So this would be like, you know, if I, you know, did some recon ahead of time, I'm like, all right, give me some names of two girls that are not getting along 
That would be weird, right? And then I just like call you out. I'm like, hey, you guys need to start getting along. This is ridiculous. Everybody's sick of it, right? And that's basically what Paul does. It's kind of embarrassing. But what it does is it shows us how much Paul cares about unity and how important this is to him. And you go on to verse 3, just in case you get the wrong impression about these, these two ladies. They're not actually bad ladies. They're just, they're just having some kind of conflict, and they need to get over it. Because in verse 3, he actually commends them, along with Clement and a bunch of others, for being faithful and for helping him and his ministry and, and upholding the gospel. And all that to say that the Lord is watching. God cares what you do. God cares how you treat others. And in every interaction with others, you're having an impact, whether it's good or bad, right? In verse 3, we kind of see the, the negative impact of, of what they're doing wrong relationally. And then in verse 4, we, or I'm sorry, in verse, verse uh, 1, we see that. And then in, in verse 2, we see the negative impact. Verse 3, we see what they're doing right, okay? So God is, is watching it, and you're either, in, in every interaction with another person, you're either bringing glory to God by the way that you treat others, or you're not. Right? You're, you're, you're failing to honor God and glorify him by the way that you treat people created in his image. All right, jump to the next section, verses 4 to 5. So this is going to be joy and gentleness, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, first is the, the command to rejoice. This means to, to be glad or to be joyful, kind of interesting that it's a command. I mean, can you command someone to be joyful? I actually do this with my kids all the time. I say, look, we're going to do this. You know, we're going to grandma's house. We're going to this thing at church, and you're going to have fun. Uh, Dad, you can't make us have fun. I'm like, uh, bet. Like, watch me. Watch me make you have fun, right? You know, I'm going to at least make you pretend to have fun. I'm going to at least make you pretend to have a good attitude about what we're doing, Okay. Well, here he's commanding them to rejoice. And not only is he commanding them to rejoice, but he says it again. And this is exactly what I do with my children. I just repeat myself. Sometimes when they're little, like you say something and they're kind of, you know, doing their ADD thing, right? And you just got to take their chubby little cheeks in your hands. You got to get the eye contact and you got to say it again, right? Brush your teeth, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> Clean your room, whatever it is you want them to do. So he says rejoice. And maybe he, maybe he knows that they instantly think like, you can't make us rejoice. Or maybe they're thinking, seriously, rejoice? Like, do you even know what we're going through? Do you even understand the hardship? Do you even understand the persecution? And so he just kind of cuts it off, and he says it again. Rejoice. He understands. He knows. He's endured persecution. You know, there's a lot of miserable people in the world. You know that antidepressants are the number one selling category of prescription medicine in the United States of America. Right? People are struggling to find gladness, to find happiness, to find joy. And I think most of the world has given up on finding true happiness. It's like to, to a lot of people, the pursuit of happiness is just kind of a joke. It's like, you know, something you can find while you're searching for, you know, unicorns and honest politicians, right? You know, maybe happiness is out there somewhere in that category. It's just like something that we can't, something that we can't get a hold of. But this is not so for Christians. We have joy because God gave it to us. Remember uh, Galatians 5? You ever heard a little thing in Galatians 5 called the fruit of the Spirit? Right? You know the fruit of the Spirit. Love. What? There it is. Second thing on the list. Joy. God gives us joy. There are 33 different words 
or word combinations relating to joy in the Old and New Testament. Literally hundreds of verses about joy and happiness and gladness and mirth and blessedness. And again, notice that this is an imperative. That means it's a, it's a command. You really can have true joy if your heart is right with God. Victor Hugo said that the supreme happiness in life is the knowledge that you're loved. The supreme happiness in life is the knowledge that you are loved. Now, if that's a true statement, who's happier than Christians? Who knows true love? Who has experienced love? Who knows every single day of their life that they are loved and sustained by the creator who gave his son for them? This generates joy in us. When you recognize that because of his great love for you, Christ died on the cross and he bore the weight of your sins and you choose to to follow Christ, he gives you a new life. He gives you a fresh start. He gives you a do-over. He gives you a second chance. And this is a great cause for joy. A relationship with Christ is the only way to heaven. It's the only way to peace with God. And it's the only way to a life of joy. Apart from Christ, you will struggle the rest of your life to try to grasp and find happiness and purpose and joy. And Paul knew this. Paul's an amazing example of someone who had inner joy, even though his circumstances were pretty stinky sometimes, right? I mean, Paul is beaten and uh, abused, and they try to stone him, and they throw him in prison, and I mean, it's just like he's shipwrecked. I mean, this is just his life, right? I mean, if you want to compare hardships, (laughs) compare it with Paul, and you'll probably have an opportunity to do this next week a little bit as you look at that passage. Notice in in verse 5, in addition to joy... Believers are also supposed to have gentleness, which is evident to all. So, let me just ask you, as a practical matter, if you took a poll and you asked others about your demeanor, right? We went around and we said, you know, fill in the blank with your name, right? Is this person joyful and gentle? What would people say? What would, be the, what would be the response? What would your peers, your teachers, your parents, your teammates, your coaches, your, your co-workers, or the ultimate test, your little brothers and sisters? That's, that's, that's the hardest people to be joyful with, right? You're like, oh, sometimes I do. All right. So, so listen, I, I used to purposely antagonize my sister. And I would irritate her and irritate her and irritate her because I knew that eventually she would hit me. And then as soon as she would hit me, I would say, Mom, she hit me. <laughs> and I'd just do it on purpose just, just to get her in trouble. That's, that's what little brothers do, right? Does joyful and gentle, does, does that describe you? Gentleness means that you don't get worked up easily. You don't retaliate against people or circumstances. Outwardly, you're, you're not harsh with others. And really, I think the idea wrapped up in gentleness is, is not only that you're not harsh, but, but that you actually go out of your way to show consideration to others. That you're willing to, to sacrifice your rights or your desires in, in order to help someone else and to, to put someone else first. And ladies, especially, can I just urge you 
that when you consider what kind of man you want to be with someday, put gentleness near the top of the list. Find a godly, kind, gentle man. And why should we be gentle? Verse 5 tells us why. I love that God doesn't just tell us to do things, but he gives us reasons. He says, because the Lord is near. And I think the idea is that, that when Christ returns, you know what? Our petty bickering, our silly childish arguments are going to melt away. They're going to seem so, so small when we stand before Christ. It's like, what were we arguing about? Right? Have you ever done this like in real life where you're like mad at someone and then you forget what you were mad at them for? I'm really bad at staying mad. And sometimes like I have a good reason to be upset with someone, especially like when I was little. And I was like, okay, I got to remember why I'm mad at them because I don't want to wake up in the morning and forget why I was mad at this person. And I try really hard to remember my reason for being mad, but I was just really, really bad at staying mad at people, right? Sometimes you get in this like, you know, this long argument. It's like, how did this even start? Like, how did we even get here? I don't even remember what was like the first thing that we were fighting about. When we were doing youth ministry one year, my, uh, my wife, there was, there was a couple of girls that, that were going to our church, but they didn't come to youth group. And we really wanted them to, to be part of the youth ministry and to be plugged in. And, and so my wife, uh, they were, uh, I think, one was a junior and one was a senior in high school. My wife called their moms and said, hey, you know, we'd love to have the girls at youth group. You know, is there a reason that they, they haven't been able to get plugged in? What can we do to, to help them? And the, the mom said, oh, when they were in sixth grade, do you know what this girl said to them? They're like, wait, what? Like, your daughter's a junior? <laughs> your other daughter's a senior? They're not coming because a girl said something mean to them in sixth grade? And they haven't been coming to youth group ever since? I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But sometimes we let this root of bitterness get in us. We let this kind of disunity, these kind of silly things happen in the church, in our school, even as Christians. Guys, it's a poor testimony. We want the world to see our love for one another. We want them to see our gentleness. We want them to see our joy and our unity. Jump to verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want us to be anxious for anything. He commands us, right? Our, our, our hearts and minds to, are, are to be rid of stress and worry. Does that even seem possible to you? Like when you read this, do you think like, I wish. Like I wish that was like a realistic thing. I wish that was a thing that I could really do to, to be rid of anxiety and, and stress and worry. I mean, we're anxious about so many things all the time right but how exciting guys how exciting is it to know that god wants us to be rid of this and he's empowering us the truth is that our anxious thoughts primarily originally originate from a, a lack of faith john MacArthur says that usually it's a direct result of a failure to understand that everything is already under control and somebody better than you is running it, right? Sometimes we just, we just want control. We want to control everything. We want to get everything exactly right, and we forget there's already someone in control. God is in control, not you, and we have to rest in that, and we have to have faith in him. 
And Paul understood that God orchestrates all of history and God is in control of his circumstances and God is in control of your day and your circumstances. And so verse six tells us what we can do instead of worrying. This is like kind of like the replacement thing, like get rid of anxiety, get rid of worry, and instead put this there. And what is it? Verse six, you see it? What is it? This is not even rhetorical. Go. What do we do instead in verse six? Thank you. Prayer. Good job. All right. Yes. Prayer. Right. We pray. Take our cares, our requests to God. By the way, if you're in Bible class or in chapel, uh, Jesus, the Bible and prayer is like 90 percent of the answers to things. Okay, so just like throw those out. Even if you feel like it doesn't make sense, it's, that's probably what we're looking for. I'm just trying to help you out here. So, so listen, prayer, you say, oh, great. Okay, that's like, sounds like a spiritual band-aid, right? You know, hey, don't worry, just pray about it. It's like a bumper sticker or something like, like a t-shirt slogan. I mean, it's like, like, is this like real advice? Is this like real world advice that's, that's actually helpful? Wait a minute, think about this. What we're saying is that the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe cares about you and is available. He's available to you. Spurgeon says, uh, we can be omnipotent if we know how to pray. Now, it's a little sketchy if you're not careful, right? But he's just saying, like, when you pray according to God's will, you call on the power of the almighty God. And he works in cooperation with you for, for his glory and for your good, and that's pretty incredible. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. It's pretty amazing. And verse 7, the promise is that when we do this, what? We trade our anxiety for faith. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does peace sound good to you? I mean, don't we all love peace? Like world peace, that would be great. Peace in my home would be nice, right? Just, just for everyone, like we just go home and, and it's just a peaceful environment. That's just not the case for all of us, right? What about peace in your own heart, in your own mind? That's what's being promised here. And not just a little bit of peace, but peace beyond comprehension. Peace that you can't even imagine. When you trust the Lord and when you live a life of faithfulness, it's pretty incredible. Amazing promise. And isn't it neat that God so often when he commands us, when he, when he gives those imperatives, there's also a reward. There's a, a, a blessing attached for our obedience, for our faithfulness. All right, quickly, verses 8 and 9. Just a couple minutes. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We don't have a lot of time, but listen, verse eight, verse eight, Philippians four, eight, will be a life-changing verse for you if you will let it. If you would use verse 8 as a litmus test, how much of your life would change? Apply verse 8 to your thought life. 
Apply it to what you view on TV and, and on your phone. Apply it to the music that you listen to and, and the jokes that you tell. Apply it to your dating relationship. If something is not true, if it's not honorable, if it's not right, if it's not pure, if it's not lovely or good, cut it out of your life. Get on God's path. Walk by the Spirit. Pursue hard after God and holiness. We have to learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And Titus 2.12 says that our Christianity instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And just a few uh, verses uh, earlier, uh, oh no, uh, let's see, I don't know where I got that, hold on, Titus 2.6, that's what I want. Titus 2.6 says, uh, likewise urge the young men to be sensible, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. He's saying, you teenagers, you young people in the church, you're the example. You're the ones with the youthful energy. You're the ones with the zeal. You're the ones with the exuberance. You be the example. You think all the time, like, you, you know, you're, you're looking for examples and mentors and disciples and all these things, but, but several times in Scripture, we're told, you young people, be the example for the rest of the believers. And that's a pretty exciting position to be in. And here, if we take verse 8 and we apply this as a standard to our life, we conform our life to the image of Christ. We conform our life to the word of God in every area, and we reap all the blessings that God has for us. So as you go to groups, I, I want you to talk about these standards in verse 8. I want you to talk about these these uh, four different sermons, what it looks like to have a, a life of joy that's, that's rooted in prayer and, and peace and gentleness and all of these topics and how we can apply these things so that we can live lives that honor and glorify God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your encouragement so much uh, packed into these verses. It's incredibly, Lord, this, this, this ancient document that we hold in our hands. What a blessing for us to have copies of the Word of God. What an incredible truth that, that these things written so long ago apply perfectly to what concerns me today, to the struggles that I face, to the, the difficulties that I have. And I pray that your Word would work in the hearts of each one here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.